Okay? Come on, church, you okay? Amen. First service was wide awake, man. They were wide awake. Okay? So, Father, thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here and uh, to worship you and to exalt you and to magnify you in your name, Lord Jesus. Just bless our time together here. I decrease that you would increase. I empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself. And everything that I say, everything that I do would be of you and not of me. For we praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, a Bible app, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We're now in chapter 3. We're now in part 6 of our series, Church Life. Say Church Life. More enthusiasm, say Church Life. Church life. And as always, before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text. It was chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. And I gave you two points. And the text was on women in worship. Quickly here, the first point of last week's text was her responsibility. Say that. Her responsibility. That's verses 9 through 10. And Paul, what he does, he begins his instruction by addressing the women's responsibility when it comes to their outward appearance. And apparently, some of the women there in Ephesus were trying to gain respect or get attention by looking beautiful rather than becoming Christ-like in character. Paul then says that women should make herself, uh, should make herself not primarily by make herself beautiful, not primarily by the way she fashions her hair or by uh, the clothes that she wears, rather by means of good works. Say that. By means of good works. In other words, it's how she lives, not how she looks. The second point was her role. Say that, her role. And that's in verses 11 through 15. And Paul says a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Uh, if, if, the, if your Bible renders it as silence, that's not a good translation. But quietness and submission might imply some there in Ephesus. The women were causing a disturbance in the worship services by interrupting. Now remember, quietness, and we learned this last week, quietness is translated peaceful. Say, say peaceful. And what it does, it carries the idea without contention. And so Paul calls them, the women, these women, to learn in a peaceful way without contention. And in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now Paul, we learned this right last week, Paul's not commanding women to never teach because the Bible is very clear that women are permitted to teach. But in their teaching, what he's saying, in their teaching ministry, they must not lord it over men. And then Paul, what he does, he gives two arguments to back up his admonition that Christian men in the church should be the spiritual leaders. And the first argument was uh, to, had to do with creation. We covered that. And the second argument has to do with the fall of mankind. And we covered that as well. Paul then, what he does, he provides an important contrast related to Eve's role as the first sinner. And I gave you two interpretations of that. That first interpretation was that women will be saved through the Messiah. The second interpretation was that women will be saved from reproach. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of my message today is Pastoral Leadership. Everyone say that. So what Paul does now, Paul now turns our attention to the importance of qualified pastors of the church. I want to give you two points to the text. If you're ready, say yes. Number one is this, the pastor's call. Everyone say that. The pastor's call. Write that down. The pastor's call. We're going to look at verse 1. The pastor's call, verse 1. And Paul writes, here is a trustworthy, your Bibles might render it as faithful, saying. In other words, it's significant. Paul's saying this is important and it must be remembered. So what must be remembered? Well, he says, if anyone sets 
his heart or aspires on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the New Testament uses three key words that help uh, paint a picture of pastoral leadership in the church. And the first one is overseer slash uh, bishop. It's the Greek word episkopos, uh, from which we get episcop- episcopal, right? We get that word from that. And it means to oversee. It means to care for. The, the second word is elder. Say elder. It's the Greek word for uh, presbyteros, uh, from which we get Presbyterian. And what does it refer to one who is mature and models the faith? The third word is pastor or slash shepherd. It's a Greek word poimen, say poimen. It means to shepherd, one who cares for the needs of others. So those are the three words that we see in Scripture, and these titles refer to the same position, say same position. Uh, they are often used interchangeably in Scripture, and so I, I want to demonstrate that to you through Scripture here, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Again, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2. And we see those three titles in this in these verses, and Peter writes to the elders, there it is, elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, say elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one, who's also, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. And he says this, be shepherds, say, say shepherds, that's also pastor of God's flock that is under your care, serving, here we go, as overseers. There's that word bishop, overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. So let's go back to the text, okay? Here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart, or in other words, aspires on being an overseer, he desires a what? Say, noble task. So these two words there, aspire and desire, what it does, it describes somebody who pursues the ministry because of an inner compulsion. It carries the connotation of passionately setting your heart upon something. So I want you to follow me here. It's not so, not so much a drive to be a pastor, not so much a drive to be an elder or a bishop or a leader, rather a drive to serve. It's a desire of a good work, of a noble work. It's an inner desire to serve God, and not just serve God, but also to care for God's people. It's also the discipline to pursue it. So it's not about the office. It's not the, about the office of pastor or elder or bishop. It's about the work. It's about the work. It's about studying God's Word. It's about caring for God's people. Now, i got to say this. Unfortunately, there are individuals who enter the ministry as a job or as a career thinking that they can, you know, become famous or make some money, you know. And to them, it's all about prestige and money. And I want to tell you, pastoral leadership is a calling. And it's a calling that is, is, is put in your heart by God himself. It is God who places this in your heart. He puts a deep desire in your heart for the noble task of pastoral leadership. And you see, pastoral leadership isn't all about titles. It's not about money. It's not about making a name for yourself or honor or a platform for greatness or glory. It's about work. It's a noble work, but it's work. Trust me, it's work. Amen? And Paul's point here is there should be a God-given desire that moves in the heart to action. Now, I want to say this. People can, can go to a, a Christian college and, and go to seminary 
to be trained for pastoral leadership, but they have to be gifted by the Holy Spirit. Man, and I got to tell you, I, 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 I've never gone to Christian college. I, I don't have seminary training, but I believe that God has gifted me by his Holy Spirit to preach the word. I want you to write this down. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's a calling from God's Holy Spirit that moves in our hearts. Amen? He says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Listen, church, pastoral leadership is not a job, nor is it a carnal aspiration. It's a calling. Again, it's a calling. It's a spiritual inspired call to lead that cannot be satisfied by doing anything else. Now, I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I always say to the young fellows who consult me about the ministry, don't be a minister if you can help it. Because if the man can help it, God never called him. But if he cannot help it, and he must preach or die, then he's the man. I love that. Amen? Now, now most of you guys know my story. I, you know, I, I never wanted to be a pastor. I worked at Racy Fish and Poultry uh, nights, and I was uh, getting trained for management at that time. I also played in a, in a band called The Cry. I was the, the leader, the songwriter, the guitar player for the band, also the Bible study teacher for the band, and the extended ministry of The Cry. The band was Cry Out Ministries. And, uh, you know, I, I ha always had a heart for God's Word, and I had a heart for, for people, but I never really wanted to be a pastor. And, you know, throughout my life and my Christian walk, there were many people, when we go minister places, there were many people that would, you know, just speak a word into my life and say, hey, man, pastor, uh, not pastor at that time, it wasn't, but hey, Arnold, you know, um, I, I believe there was a calling on your life. And my mom, as you guys know, my mom always told me, you're going to be a pastor, you're going to be a pastor. And I said, hey, mom, you know. And so, you know, I, I never wanted to be a pastor, and, and I fought it for a long time until I finally surrendered to God's call on my life. Amen? And it was God. And, and I realized when I surrendered, you know, God's call in my life, to, to God's call in my life, it was God who placed in my heart that good work, that noble task, and I could no longer fight it or deny it. It was there. It was in my heart. On September 13th, 1992, was the inception of Cry Out Christian Fellowship and where I began my pastoral calling. And this past September, you guys know this, right? We celebrated 31 years of ministry. Amen? You can praise God for that. Amen. And so as your pastor, I cannot be satisfied by doing anything else than what I'm doing here. And I, I got to tell you, from sincerity of my heart, I, I love God. I do love God. I love his word. And I love people. I love his people. I, I don't like, listen, I'm not in the people. I'm in the crowd. I'm not, no, excuse me. I'm not in the crowds. I love people. Amen. Because we get caught up in crowds, but it's all about people. And I knew this calling was a noble work and that it was not to be taken lightly because I've learned that it carries with it great responsibility. And as a pastor, I am influencing people not only for today or tomorrow, but forever. Forever. Now, here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? Be used by God. Say that. Be used by God. Because when God looks for someone to use, He looks for someone, listen now, who has allowed themselves to be burdened by God. Burdened by God. 
Okay, they see the loss. They, they see the needs of the church and, and they want to serve. They, they desire to serve God. They desire to serve his people. You see, it's, it's those people who God uses to build his church and advance his kingdom. So, so question, that being said, are you allowing God to place a desire in you to serve? Let me ask you this. In what ways are you reaching out for opportunity, opportunity excuse me, to use your gifts and meet the needs of others around you? What, what, what specific burdens has God given you for ministry? And let me ask you this. In what ways are you serving or preparing to better serve the kingdom of God? Amen? Because he places in our hearts as believers, not just pastors, but believers, to want to serve for the kingdom of God. Amen? So this is Paul's call here. It's a calling by God's Spirit to be a pastor, to be an elder, to be a bishop, okay, to be an overseer. So that's the pastor's call. Number two, we're going to spend most of our time here, is the pastor's character. Say that. The pastor's character. So, so after focusing on the pastor's call, and Paul did that, obviously we read that, we went through that, Paul now begins to lay out the qualifications concerning the pastor's character. Now, now listen, God has specific character qualifications for pastors in the church. Now, now this, this is more a character description and less of a job description. Follow me here. Pa Paul is more concerned about the man's character than he is about what the man can do. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Leaders should not be chosen just because they're volunteers or, or because they desire a position or because they're eloquent, or because they give a lot of money, or because they went to seminary, or because they have natural or, or spiritual gifts, or even because they are natural leaders, or because they, they have charisma. No, no, no. They should be chosen because they match the character qualifications listed here in today's text. Amen? Now, now listen, Paul didn't say, find the most gifted Rather, find the most qualified, right? And what qualifies one desiring pastoral leadership is godly character, and godly character is established according to the criteria Paul lists here in the text. Now, now perhaps some of you right now, you're checking out. You're saying, you're checking out, you know, you're thinking, what good is this message for me? You're checking out because you're not a pastor, because you're not an elder or a bishop, an overseer, you know, nor do you have a desire to be one. And so you're saying, what's this good for me? It's not good for me. I mean, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a bishop. Listen, these characters, I want you to get this. These character qualifications, these qualities, okay, are valuable for every single believer. Got it? Every single believer. I understand the text is for the pastor. But it's also for every single believer, not just those who seek to attain a position of leadership. If you're with me, say amen. Now, don't follow me. These qualifications, these qualities are clear indicators, measuring guides, if you will, of godly character and also spiritual maturity. They can give a true measure of a believer. And each of us, whether in leadership or not, can benefit from comparing ourselves to this list and seeing where God may want to do some work in our lives. Amen? So let's look at these character qualifications, these, these qualities. I want you to follow me. Verse 2. Verse 2. Now the overseer, B, 
bishop, elder, pastor, is to be above reproach. Say above reproach. Okay? Can, can also be translated blameless. Above reproach, blameless, literally means nothing to take hold of. Say that. Nothing to take hold of. This doesn't mean flawless. It doesn't mean faultless or sinless. It has to do with unquestioned integrity. Unquestioned integrity. In other words, there must be nothing in the life of the leader that others can take hold of and attack his life or the church that he represents. It means that there are no legitimate concerns about this man's life that anyone can hold up and criticize. It means be morally upright. It means no hidden secrets, no skeletons in the closet, no surprises. He is a man of integrity. He's a man of, of sincerity and consistency in his walk with God. No one can stand up and rightfully accuse him of practicing a lifestyle of sin. Now I want to say this. This doesn't mean that no one brings an accusation against him. But the accusations against him are not right, fair, or valid. In other words, they don't stick. Amen? They don't stick. So you ready for the lesson? Here we go. And I, we've, 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 we've uh, learned about this lesson in many of our, our sermons lately. Is Here we go. Integrity matters. It matters. My father always told me that integrity matters. Integrity is acting consistently, consistently with what you say you believe. Right? If you say you're a Christian, then act like one. If you say you believe God's word, then act like you believe is God's word. Okay? If you say you love Jesus, and listen now, act like you love Jesus. Right? Act consistently with what you say you believe. Because integrity matters. Let's read on. Then he says, the husband of but one wife. Why does he say but one wife? Because Paul there is pro prohibiting polygamy or promiscu promiscuity. He's prohibiting that. That was rampant at that time as, as it is today, right? <laughs> right? As the husband has one wife, when he says that, it literally means a one-woman man. Say that, one-woman man. So what he's saying is he, this guy, this leader, is a husband who is committed and faithful to his wife. She's the love of his life. And all the ladies said, huh? amen, right? In other words, he doesn't have eyes for anyone else but his wife. He doesn't flirt with other women. He's not a player, okay? He's not a player. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's not out doing hanky-panky with other women, you know, including images of women in pornography. He's completely committed to his wife. His romantic attention and his focus is on her and her alone. What he does, he values and cherishes and looks at her as the only one for him. And what he does, friends, he has a personal, I love this, he has a personal commitment to purity and fidelity in his relationship with his wife. Now I want to say this, and listen. The failure to be a one-woman man has probably put more men out of the ministry than any other sin. It's true. You see, the pastor who's a one-woman man fears God. Fears God. And because he fears God, he remains faithful to God. 
faithful to his wife and faithful to the church. Now I want to say this to the text, the husband of but one wife. It doesn't mean that one seeking pastoral leadership must be married. And if that were the case, then Paul would be disqualified. Paul was single. Nor does it give the idea that he could never remarry if his wife has passed away or if he were biblically divorced. So I want to make sure we're clear on that. Amen? So you ready for the lesson? Very simple. Here we go. Be faithful to your spouse. Be faithful to your spouse. Do you remember the day you got married? Some of you are like, huh, what, when, what, huh? Do you remember the day you got married? Gosh, man, so you guys, do you remember, was it that bad? Do you remember the day you got married? Yeah, amen. On that day, whatever the day that was, okay, that day you got married, you made a covenant, not a contract, a covenant, a commitment to each other for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, through boldness, bulges, and bad breath, to death do you part. Right? You made a commitment. And so be faithful to your spouse for those of us who are married. Then he goes on. Let's read on. He says temperate. Say temperate. Literally means to be self-restrained or not a hothead or not one who flies off the handle. The thought here is is of one who is able to act and able to think and, and render sensible, sober judgment in all areas of their life. And so what Paul's saying, the pastor's even-tempered. He's, he's clear-headed, balanced. He's, he's discerning. He's, he's discreet. He, he has nothing that clouds his senses. In other words, what he's saying is this. This man, this pastor, this elder, uh, this, this deacon, he waits on God. He doesn't act emotionally or impulsively, especially in a moment of crisis. And guess what? He doesn't fall apart when his world falls apart. Then he goes on to say this, self-controlled. Your Bibles might render it as sober-minded. In other words, what he does, and I love this, he governs his passions and appetites. Oh, boy, you hear that? He governs his passions and appetites. Why? Because self-control affects how he thinks, how his mind operates, and it affects his actions. And, boy, don't we need to control our appetites and passions, friends? Why? Because self-control affects how we think, Right? How our mind operates and how it affects our actions. What we think is what we feel. What we feel is what we act out. So self-control and sober mind. Then he goes on to say respectable. Your Bibles might render it as a of good behavior. In other words, orderly, honorable, or dignified. Not chaotic. Not, not in constant turmoil. But there's not constant drama in their life. And he has earned the respect of people. And also those he's serving have respect for him. And that his conduct in all ways reflects, okay, always reflects the dignity of the office. In other words, wherever you see him uh, in, in the church, behind the pulpit, or at the mall, or at the ball game, or, or at a restaurant, or at the gym, he lives the same way in those places and in the home as he does in the pulpit. In other words, he's not a phony baloney, right? He's not some phony dude. He, he, he always, he's always aware of who he is and, and the God who he represents and the office that he represents. He's a good witness. Say he's a good witness. And what this does, this greatly, greatly adds to his credibility. 
It also says this, he's hospitable. Hospitable. Now what Paul is saying here is that a pastor is approachable. Not only approachable, but a pastor is warm, he's friendly, he's considerate of others, and he's one who genuinely cares for others. Now I want to say this. I do hope that I'm approachable. And I want to let you know, you can come to me any time and, and ask me what's on your heart or just talk to me, okay? I think that the, the danger is in churches today is that you have people who are, who are exalting and worshiping pastors, right, rather than esteeming them, which you should esteem your pastors, but they put them up on this high pedestal that they feel they can't come to him. And I want you to know, friends, I'm just like you. I put my pants on just like you. Amen? And I pray that, that you can come to me and that you can share whatever is on your heart that I'm approachable. And not only that, that I'm warm, that hopefully I'm friendly and that I'm considerate of others and, and you and that I genuinely care for you. And if, if you don't see me displaying this, then, then call me on it. That's okay. Call me on it. But I do hope and pray that you find me hospitable, that I do care for you and, and that you can come to me anytime. Then he says this, able to teach. Now I want to point something out because we've been talking about characteristics, right? Right? Qualifications, qualities. But able to teach, this is not a character trait. This is a gifting. You guys with me? The gift to teach. So he's able, in other words, this teacher, this pastor is able to explain and apply the text, right? In other words, he's a student of the word. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says that this teacher, this pastor, this overseer, bishop, he is one who presents himself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly, listen now, handles, or in other words, divides the word of truth. That as a teacher, okay, he teaches God's word to God's people. And what this teacher does, he believes and embraces the word as revealed truth. He teaches and lives the truth, never invents truth or adds new truth to the unchanging revealed truth. He preaches God's word. He teaches God's truth. Now that being said, church services are to be centered on God's word. Period. Centered on God's word. And unfortunately, friends, they're... they're, they're there are churches today, trust me on this, there are churches today that are no longer preaching God's word. It's just a talk or a feel-good message or, or motivational speech or some self-help. They don't even refer, they don't even quote the word of God. A.W. Tozer said this, there was a time when people went to church, heard the truth, and wept over their sins. Today, people go to church, hear a motivational speech, and ignore their sins. Wow. Listen, since the church is built on the Word of God, pastors must devote themselves to the study and the teaching of God's Word. Nothing, say nothing, nothing must be allowed to take the place of this central priority. Amen? God has called pastors to teach and preach the Word of God. 
Now, I just I had a conversation with one of our church members at the pantry on Friday, and we were just talking about church, and we always talk about church and church stuff, and we just got on the subject of the Word and study of the Word, and, and I asked, well, how, much, how many hours do you think that I, it takes me to, to prepare one message? And, you know, and, 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 you know, he didn't know, and he, he said, well, maybe like two or three hours ago, oh, you're way off, bro, you know, you're way off, you know. No, two or three hours, no, no. And so I told him, I said, it's going to blow you away. It takes me about 22 hours to preach and prepare for one, to prepare for one message, okay, and in 40 minutes it's gone. And it's sad because some of you just forget it once you walk out the door, <laughs> okay, okay. But last week's text, which was a difficult text, Took me 32 hours. Now we're talking from praying to research to looking at the text, exegesis of the text, all that stuff. Okay? But it's the pastor's responsibility to bury his face in the word of God to feed you good word. Amen. And it breaks my heart when you have these pastors in these churches that are just saying the talk, won't even educate nor feed people the word of God. Amen? So it's the responsibility of the pastor to be a teacher and a preacher of the Word of God. Not philosophy, not opinion, not, you know, not uh, what our culture thinks or what they say. No, the Word of God. Can someone please give me an amen? Verse 3, let's move on. Verse 3, not given to drunkenness. Not given to drunkenness. Now, in other words, a pastor cannot be prone to drunkenness. Why? Because this is part of being self-controlled. Drunkenness clouds the mind. It blurs the senses. What it does, it impairs the pastor's judgment. It can affect decision-making. A pastor needs to be, listen now, a clear thinker. He needs to be alert. He needs to be discerning, capable of making good, sound decisions. Now, I want to say this. The Bible does not forbid drinking alcohol. I get that. It's very clear. The Bible does not forbid drinking alcohol. However, it does caution us about drinking. And it forbids drunkenness. Why? Because drunkenness is a sin. Now, now some pastors drink. I know pastors who drink. That's their prerogative. Cool. Go for it, man. You know what? I, I, as Christians, you have the freedom to do so. But you don't have the freedom to get drunk. Amen? But I know pastors and Christians who drink. Cool. That's your, that's your freedom in Christ. But, but I have made the personal decision. This is my personal conviction. It doesn't have to be your conviction, okay? This is my personal conviction not to drink, period. Okay? Now, I'll, tell, I'll give you three reasons, three, three reasons why. I have seen, at, listen, growing up, okay, growing up, and as a pastor for 31 years, I have seen what alcohol does to people and families. The second reason is I just don't like the taste. Blech. I don't like it, okay? And the third reason is I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. Amen? There are people around us, whether we realize it or not, who struggle with alcohol and who are trying, trying to stay sober. Amen? And you have the freedom, listen now, to drink, but you don't have the freedom to get drunk, nor do you have the freedom to make someone stumble. And again, it's your prerogative to drink. Just don't get drunk in moderation, okay? But you need to be aware of those around you who will stumble because you're drinking. You guys with me? 
And that's my point. Hey, again, freedom, yes. But hey, not the freedom to get drunk, nor the freedom to make someone else stumble. We cool with that? Amen? Okay, so don't send me an email or let, okay, right? Okay, because we're cool on this, right? Amen? I didn't say you couldn't drink, right? I didn't say that, right? Right? Okay. All right. Let's move on. Okay. A violent, uh, but gentle, the, the King James says not greedy for money. That's not in the original manuscript, but we're going to get to that right now in a bit. Not violent, but gentle. Uh, the pastor, in other words, that Paul is saying the pastor is not, uh, pastor is not intimidating to people. He's not contentious. He's, he controls his temper. He's not looking for a fight. Rather, he's gentle and, and he's patient and considerate and he's kind. He doesn't feel threatened when others disagree with him. He, he doesn't demand his own way or get this out, get this now, or lash out when treated unfairly. His words and his, his actions are seasoned, get this now, with grace and forgiveness. Say grace. Say forgiveness. Talking about grace and forgiveness, man, I was tested. I was tested a little over a month ago. I, I believe about a little over a month ago. It was a Wednesday night, and I, I was not attending the men's Bible study because I was finishing up my message for that Sunday, and the women were in their study as well. And Brother, Brother Mike came in and said, Pastor Ron, you need to go to the women's Bible study. There's something going on. And so I, I went in there and because and, I had to diffuse the conflict that was happening there. And so I opened up the, the, the door, and I, I, I noticed who this lady was, and she was not on her medication. And um, I had to diffuse the situation. And so I said, so-and-so, can you, you need to leave now. You're, you're being a disturbance. And she, she said pretty much, well, if I go, everyone goes. Said, no, 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 you're, you're, you're creating a disturbance. You, you need to go now. And she gets up, and I, was, I had the door open. I was standing at the doorway there. She looked at me. She called me the F word. She slapped me in the face. And uh, she ran out the door. And you talk about uh, uh, grace and forgiveness, right? I mean, I, I will never, never, never lay a hand on a woman, um, you know. But I tell you, it was when I got slapped in the face, whoa, you know. And I was like, well, you know, okay. Now, if she would have messed up my hair, uh, you know, don't mess, don't touch my hair. Don't mess with my hair, okay? But, you know, <laughs> seriously, I had to exercise grace and I had to forgive her. Amen? And that's the first time anything like that happened to me in 31 years. Okay? So I was tested. I was tested. And I had to, you know, show grace and forgiveness. Let's read on. Not quarrelsome. In other words, the pastor is not to be the kind of man who is always looking for an argument. He must be able to... to Disagree without being disagreeable. And this doesn't mean that, you know, that he compromises his convictions. He stands true to his convictions. So, so you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. Okay? Be a peacemaker, not a peace faker, nor a troublemaker. Okay? Be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Be one who seeks to make peace. And, and the pastors need to do that. We shouldn't be all caught up, you know, and... In, in being disagreeable and trying to, you know, disagree and fight about some just non-essential things in the church. Right? Okay. So be a peacemaker. Peacemaker. Let's read on. Not a lover of money or con, uh, covetous or not greedy for money. 
So ministry shouldn't be chosen for a career or financial aspirations. It should be chosen because a desire to serve. Now, I want to tell you this. Three main vices that bring pastors down. This is so true. Three main vices that bring pastors down. Listen now from the ministry. Power, sex, and money. Power, sex, and money. Okay? And there, i got to tell you, there have been too many stories of pastors who have stolen money from the church, embezzled money from the church, and pastors who are greedy, who are covetous, who are living beyond their means, living extravagant lifestyles, and turning their focus away from building and nurturing the church because their focus is on them, and how much money they can make, and how big of a house they can buy. So you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Money is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Money is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Amen? Now, chapter 6, verse 10 of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 10 of this book. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, some pastors, they just misinterpret this or they misread this passage here. Okay, money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. And he says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay, now there's nothing wrong with having money. It's wrong when money has you. Right? And I always say money can buy you everything but happiness and take you anywhere but heaven. Can I get an amen? Right? Again, it's a wonderful servant. And you should use your money wisely. Okay? But never let it become your master. Okay? Verses 4 and 5. Stay with me now. He must manage his own family well and see that his children, now when he, that word children there is referring to little children, younger children, not young adult children. And see that his children obey him with proper respect. Now I want to stop there. And I want to say this. Because obviously I'm your pastor, I'm a pastor and I have kids. Right? They're all grown up now, but I have kids. The pastor cannot make his children believers can't. Right? But he is, what Paul's saying, he is to live in a way that they know his walk with God is real. In other words, he has raised his children well, and that there's evidence that he's done his best to minister to them and raise them in the ways of God. You guys got that? Then he says this, verse 5, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? In other words, his ability to lead the family of God must be first demonstrated by his ability to lead his own family. Okay? Now, I want to say this. I, I, I love all of you. I really do. I truly love all of you. Okay? And, and I don't want you to get offended, but my family is more important than all of you. Amen? And I'll tell you why. Because my wife, my kids, my grandkids, my family is my number one priority. It is. It's not even the church. My family's my number one priority, my number one ministry. Men, that's your number one ministry. Amen? Because spiritual leadership begins at the home. Amen? Now, it is sad when a pastor is preaching the Word of God and acting like a holy man but living like a tyrant and the heathen at home. Every pastor 
must demonstrate godliness in the home first. Amen? And uh, by the way, I'll give you guys the freedom to talk to my kids, talk to my wife of how I live at home. Go for it. Because I have nothing to hide. Amen? Why? Because God means he's my life. And I don't want to bring shame to God, to my family, nor to you. Amen? Now let's look at the text again. I just want to say, I didn't say the first service, I'll say the second service here. Text again. If anyone in context, any pastor, does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Notice, I want you to notice, the text doesn't say the pastor is to rule the church or to reign over the church or to lord it over the church. It says to take care of the church. In other words, the pastor is the shepherd, the servant, the steward who guides and guards the sheep. Amen? And as your pastor, that's my responsibility. Not only to teach you the Word of God, to guide you through the Word of God, but also my responsibility is to protect you from false doctrine, from those who come in and want to create false doctrine. Amen? Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, referring to a young Christian. Now I want to stop there. The pastor must be matured sufficiently in the faith before he is placed in pastoral leadership. In other words, friends, it calls for roots, it calls for perception, it calls for experience, it also calls for wisdom. Now listen, to place a new convert in a place of responsibility, in a place of authority, is a recipe for disaster. It is. Why? Because they can be deluded by pride. How do we know this? Let's read on. Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Satan's downfall came because of his what? Pride. And you can find that in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 17. Now, when, when you're still young in the faith, you can fall into the trap of thinking that all the good things happening around you are because of you instead of God. Now, you may be that, but you're not all that. Amen? Verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with who? Outsiders. It's the outsiders. I want to stop there. His reputation must be good outside the church as well. And this means always living the right kind of life in front of the world. It means also paying one's debt to his creditors. It means keeping the right kind of relationship with everyone, those around him. And he should be looked at and even respected in the community. I mean, even lost people, even lost people who have dealings with him should respect him. Now, they may not agree with his beliefs, but still have a level of respect for him. And they acknowledge his honesty, his integrity, and his hard work. Now, why? The question is, why must he have a good reputation with outsiders? Well, let's read on. So that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Did you get that? Those who profess godliness at church but practice drunkenness, immorality, and dishonesty throughout the week 
open the door for the devil to trap and accuse them. The devil is always seeking, always looking to destroy the believer's testimony because to do so often destroys, listen now, the testimony of Christ and the church. When you live that way, you give a bad name to the church, you give a bad name to Christ. So here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? We're almost done here. You ready for the lesson? Be the real deal. Say that. Be the real deal. Be the real deal. Because character matters. Amen? It's about character, conduct, and commitment. Character matters. I mean, it's a vital ingredient for all Christians, whether in leadership or not. God wants the leaders in the church and all Christians to be the real deal. There's nothing more disappointing and sad when the world looks at believers and says, oh, look at those people. Phony. They say they love Jesus, but look at the way they live. We must be the real deal. Right? So as we live our lives, we got to look at ourselves. Am I displaying these qualities in my life, living the way that I should be living, so I bring honor and glory to God himself, amen, and that I display that I'm not a phony, but I'm the real deal. Amen? The real deal. So again, these character qualities as we walk through them today are valuable for every single believer. All right? I understand the context is the pastor, the elder, the overseer, the bishop. I get that, but this also applies to all believers. If you got it, say yes. Okay, so let's just wrap this up. Now you got to do your part. Okay, you see the qualities, the qualifications, what the pastor must do, how he must live. Now, what's your part? Here's your part. Here we go. Submit to your leaders. Right? Submit to your leaders. That word submit, remember, we learned this last week, hupatasso. It means to get under your leaders. Right? Get under your leaders. Hupatasso, submit to your leaders. Hebrews 13, 17. Write that down. I want to read it to you. Have confidence in your leaders and submit. Hupatasso, get under their leadership. Support them. And submit to their authority. The authority not to exercise power, but to exercise responsibility. Amen? Because they keep watch over you. As those who must give an account. I got to give an account to God how I served you, what I, how I served in the church, how I lived. Do this, this is what he says, do this so that their work, the pastor's work, will be a joy and not a burden. But that would be of no benefit to you. Amen? So, so get under our leadership. Get under the leadership of your leaders. Encourage them, right? Get under their leadership. Support them. Follow them as they follow the Word of God. The second one is this. Pray for your leaders. Don't just submit to them, but, but pray for your leaders. One of the most important things you can do for your leaders is to pray for them, that they might be more and more what God wants them to be. Amen? And honestly, friends, I mean, how often do you pray for them? Because we need your prayers. And finally, encourage them. Say that. Encourage them. Why? Because leaders need encouragement too. Because we're constantly giving out, constantly pouring 
into the lives of others, constantly just giving, giving, giving. And, and you know, hey, we're human too. We need encouragement. The last four plus months have been really taxing on me. I've been drained physically, spiritually, and emotionally, taking care of my mom and getting all her funeral arrangements taken care of. And I'm still doing things to take care of her estate. And I tell you, I was, I thank God for this church, the encouragement that you guys have brought into my life. Because we need it. Amen? We need encouragement. So I thank God for the church. I thank God for you and for how you have been such an encouragement to me. But we again need to understand that we need to be the real deal. Amen? So again, submit to your leaders. Pray for them and encourage them because leaders need encouragement too. Let's all stand. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word.